Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to Truth and Lies, the Boston Strangler. I'm your host, Dick Lear. In the first three episodes, we took you back to Boston in the 1960s when a dangerous murderer paralyzed the city with fear. Much of this fear was captured in the articles written by Loretta McLaughlin and Jean Cole, two hard-charging women reporters at the Record American newspaper. They told the story of the Boston Strangler. And now, 60 years after the murders, their own story is being told through a 20th Century Studios film now streaming on Hulu. The film, a fictional retelling based on real events, stars Kira Knightley and Carrie Coon as Loretta and Jean, piecing together clues about The Strangler. Turns out Paul Dempsey was a suspect in a murder in Maine four years before the first Strangler murder. The victim was an elderly woman found strangled with her stockings tied around her neck. It could be the original Strangler murder, but no one can get Boston Homicide to look into it. And this cop in New York will go on the record. Already did. We're not running a hit job on the police department. They're blowing the investigation. How long can we keep ignoring it? I don't know how many times we have to tell you, but we're not doing it. I don't know, Eddie. I mean, she's right. We can't keep looking the other way. The film is the creation of writer and director Matt Ruskin, who's taken other true stories and turned them into feature films. In 2017, Matt wrote and produced Crown Heights, a story about a man wrongfully convicted of a murder, and his best friend who spent 20 years trying to get him out of prison. I asked Matt about the weight of accountability when you're trying to tell a true story like you did with the men in Crown Heights. I didn't want to take any liberties at all, and I very much stuck to the facts of the story, tried to use their words wherever possible. And I screened the film for both of them before we showed it at, at, at Sundance. I was very nervous before we screened for him. And he watched the film and he came out and he said, you know, you know, I think it's good, but you got some things wrong. And, and my heart sank and I thought, you know, what did I do? I blew it. And he said, you know, there's this moment when his friend takes a picture of him for the press when they were trying to renew interest in his case. He said, you know, he w- wouldn't have been allowed to take my picture in the visiting room. You know, that would have to happen in a different place. And I said, that's the big thing? He said, yeah, that was the biggest thing for me. And I thought, all right, thank God, you know, I can live with that. So it's really, what are the most important details? What are the things that define who these people were? And and then how do you make that fit into, you know, the shape of a feature film? In his new project, Boston Strangler, Matt takes on an even bigger challenge. Telling a story that happened six decades ago, so the principal characters the story is based on are no longer living. 
The movie retells the story of the Boston Strangler through the eyes of women reporters covering the crimes in the early 1960s. And we get a glimpse into what they were up against dealing with police and sometimes their own editors. And it really captivated me, not only because I've spent my life in journalism, but also because I knew Loretta McLaughlin. I worked with her at the Boston Globe in the 80s and 90s when she was a top editor and I was on the Spotlight team. I didn't even know about Loretta's work on the Boston Strangler case back then, but I remember she was always accessible and friendly, and most of all, curious about you as a person and what you were working on. Matt grew up in the Boston area, but decades after the Strangler killings happened, I asked him what he knew about the story growing up. You know, very little. I had always heard the name, the Boston Strangler, but I never knew anything. None of the details, you know, it's kind of like the boogeyman, like everybody has heard of, of that, but you don't really know what it is if you're pressed. Well, how did you reconnect with the story? Several years ago, I had just finished a film and I was looking for the next thing. and. I started reading about the Boston Strangler, and I discovered that there was this really layered and compelling murder mystery. And I was really captivated by the story, but I didn't, you know, I'm not a serial killer buff. That that was not the draw for me. I loved growing up in Boston. I was always interested in, you know, trying to find a, a Boston story to tell. But it wasn't until I discovered this journalist, Loretta McLaughlin, um, that I became really hooked on telling this story. How did you know you wanted to turn this story into your next movie? So the idea of telling a story, you know, like a hard-boiled detective story about a cop who, you know, never got his guy. I was not really inspired to go down that road. And I heard an interview with Loretta, and I discovered that she was you know, the first journalist to connect the murders, and she actually named the Boston Strangler in her reporting. Yeah, she was certainly a force uh, when covering this case, and she really embodied great journalism. Yeah, I love journalism stories. I have tremendous respect for good journalists and journalism. And there was very little information about her available online. And I had read that she was partnered with another reporter named Jean Cole. And so... I read Jean Cole's obituary and I discovered that she had two daughters and I looked them both up on Facebook and one of them had a Facebook profile and she had one photo on her profile. And in the picture, she had her arm around a friend of mine, this woman, Lana. And so I called my friend Lana and I said, you know, what's your connection to this person? And she said, that's my mom. And that turns out this reporter, Jean Cole, was her grandmother and her favorite person on the planet. She just revered her grandmother. And so I told her my interest in the story. She introduced me to both Loretta and Jean's families, Loretta's kids and, and Jean's daughters. They welcomed me with open arms and they gave me access to, you know, clippings, photos, old journals that they had kept, and they were willing to share the family histories with me. And so at that point, I was just hooked. I felt like I, I had to find a way to tell this story. Yeah, whoa. What, I mean, what a lucky small world that you knew Jean's granddaughter and was able to pick their brain while writing this. Yeah, I can't imagine having written this film without their input and, and their help. There was really no 
better resource than, than their children who, you know, they were very young at the time, but they have memories of the Boston Strangler and they, and they have an incredible pride in what their mothers were doing and what they did. So on top of connecting with their children, Matt, how else did you do research for this film? I read everything that I could get my hands on from the famous book that Gerald Frank wrote, which was ultimately adapted into the film, the Tony Curtis film that Fox released in 1968, all the way down to self-published books about different theories of who may or may not have perpetrated some of these crimes. And then, of course, there was a ton of coverage in the press. This was really the first serial killer in the United States during the era of mass media. And there were seven papers in Boston at the time, most of which covered this, you know, wall-to-wall coverage of, of the Boston Strangler case. So I just read everything that I could possibly get my hands on and then tried to track down people who were around at the time. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the Roaring Twenties. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. What made you want to tell this story from Loretta's perspective, rather than, say, Albert DeSalvo's or someone in law enforcement? I didn't want to depict a series of murders just for the sake of depicting a series of murders. I always am looking for some other way in, some justification for telling such a dark story. And when I discovered Loretta and and learned about her story, it all sort of clicked for me because there was a real sort of personal triumph here that she was this incredibly talented and ambitious reporter. She had been at it for years. She was, you know, not new to the newsroom at the time that this story broke. And because of the period, the early 1960s, and and because she was a woman, she found herself oftentimes doing reporting that she didn't find as meaningful. Yeah, and, and you portray that in the film. Let's hear a clip. Okay, Susan, you're on must-have housewares. Thank you. Mary, you got the fashion and style feature for the Sunday edition, 20-inch feature with photos. Mm-hmm. Ellie, you're on Candidates Wives. Mm-hmm. Basic life on the trail mm-hmm. stuff, what they're eating, what they're wearing. Who, who's yelling at who? Loretta, <laughs> you got this week's product review. Sunbeam has a new toaster. You know, that was not what she aspired to do. And what I loved about telling her story is that this was 
the story in which she really proved to the world that she was a serious investigative reporter. And we have another clip from the film. Here's Loretta asking to get on the Strangler story. Jack, I think I found something. Three women were strangled over the last two weeks. I don't see the interest. These are nobodies. Who do you think our readers are? And that's just it. Why would anybody go around killing three nobody women? How do you plan to find that out? Let me profile the victims. See if there's any connection. Kid, you're not covering a homicide. Why not? Because you don't have any experience covering homicides. Well, how am I supposed to get any experience if you won't give me a shot? No. Oh, come on. It's slow. I'll do it on my own time. All right. But you're still on the lifestyle disc. It was also a period where, you know, there were not a lot of women in the newsroom and there was a lot of pressure for her to focus on her home life and her children. And I just found it incredibly inspiring that this woman always had total clarity in terms of what she wanted to live a fulfilling, rewarding life. And she was completely committed to that. And I felt like that was sort of this timeless and and really inspiring layer to it, this sort of character story imposed on this murder mystery and this serial killer story that I was really passionate about telling. I was personally moved by her story. Yeah. And and Matt, what kind of impact did their reporting have? There were sort of two really significant things that came from their reporting. The term serial killer didn't even exist. I don't think that was coined for another 10 years. And this was the very early stages of the field of criminology. This was before forensic testing. So the the Boston Police Department was very much a, a blunt instrument. They were going off of, you know, tip-offs and hunches. Loretta and Jean were very much interested in you know, the why, why would somebody do this? And they were interviewing, you know, psychiatrists and psychologists trying to profile who this killer could be before that was even a real field in law enforcement. So, you know, one of their contributions is that they worked tirelessly to keep women informed at a time when the police department was coming up short. And the other major contribution was that, you know, during the course of their reporting, they discovered that local police departments in and around Boston were not talking to each other. They weren't sharing information. And many of them were getting a lot of their information from Loretta and Jean's reporting. And so they started writing a series of articles pressuring the state to form a centralized effort to try and catch the the strangler. And they in part contributed to the attorney general making the decision to form a special statewide task force, which was very much viewed as an insult to the Boston Police Department, but a very important step towards centralizing all of the information and and sharing and analyzing all of the the information that law enforcement had gathered. They had a, a very unique perspective on these crimes and that they were women and they could identify with these women and they were very interested in who these women were and how this could have happened to them. And you filmed in Boston, right? What did that bring to the film? 
Yeah, it was great to be able to shoot the film in Boston. I talked to so many people who knew someone who had a run-in with the Boston Strangler or remembers, you know, the terror that, you know, they experienced, whether it was hiding at night or being wary of strangers. It was really, you know, an incredible experience to try and go back and get a sense for that period and to be able to do it in Boston. I can't imagine trying to do that somewhere else. And then the other thing that was really important to me is that there's an incredible, incredibly deep pool of talent, of, of incredible actors in Boston. There's an amazing theater scene and a lot of very talented actors locally. And so it was another way to be able to create a sense of authenticity of place by casting a lot of, of people from Boston in many of the supporting roles in the film. And in creating that sense of authenticity, how do you approach this as a filmmaker? We really wanted to tell a character-driven story and stay committed to, you know, authenticity from this time period and authenticity of character. I've worked with really wonderful creatives, this production designer, John Goldsmith, who had lived in Boston at one point. He studied in Boston and, you know, worked very hard to try and create a vocabulary for these environments and what kind of wallpaper would we have? Would an elderly woman downtown have versus, you know, a young family living outside of the city? All the way to looking at colonial color palettes from, you know, the old Fog Museum and things like that, that, you know, were wonderful to try and weave into the film and worked with a costume designer named Arjun Bassan who dressed Kira and Carrie and, and really transporting us back to that period. I know from some projects I've worked on, that's a huge challenge. Trying to fit a big case like this that spans and spreads out over a few years. I mean, all you have is a couple hours to work with. How do you make that happen? How do you make those choices as a filmmaker? I've gotten a bit more comfortable with taking some liberties provided that you're true to the spirit of who these people were and that the really interesting things that you could never make up make the movie. You know, I always find there are such incredible stories out there that, you know, when I read about these exceptional people's lives, I always think, oh, I could never have made that up. Those are always the cornerstones for me. It's a real challenge trying to fit things into you know, the structure of a feature film, given the time constraints and the, the shape of these stories. And so there was a lot of condensing, but took some liberties with the timeline and, and made things happen over, you know, a shorter period of time and, you know, combined some characters for clarity and just to make things easier to follow. And as you took a deep dive and did your research into Loretta's life, who's definitely the focus here of this film, was there anything you found that surprised you? I always love finding little bits of information that always sort of go against type or expectation. You know, the first thing that really jumped out was that Loretta's had a very supportive husband, that he supported her career. They met at journalism school at Boston University. She had a very supportive husband in the home who was proud of her and the work that she was doing and her pursuit of it. One other thing that I did not expect was that among the people who were least approving of Loretta pursuing a career while she had three children at home were many of the women in her life, from her mother to in-laws to, you know, other women in the community who all felt that 
you know, this was very indulgent and that she should really be doing the work at home and taking care of her household. One thing that I think was really important for both Loretta and Jean were that they both had really wonderful mentors. They had editors who really believed in them and as tough as they could be at times, you know, respected them as journalists and, and gave them both the opportunity to, to pursue the work they wanted to do, which I thought was just another really interesting aspect of their story. And Kira Knightley plays Loretta McLaughlin. Matt, why do you think she was right for this role? Kira just, she really just possessed all of the qualities required of this role. She has this incredible strength and fortitude that comes across in so much of her work. But she also has this remarkable ability to be vulnerable and convey this vast interior life. When she read the script, she really identified with Loretta. She's also a mother and, and she knows, you know, all too well the challenges of balancing family and a demanding career. And so I think she really identified with her in, in many ways. Your film really gives us a window into journalism and why it matters who's doing the reporting and the questions they're asking. I have so much respect for good journalism. And I think it's, you know, an underfunded and shrinking industry that is important as ever, especially, you know, with the onslaught of misinformation and just how saturated our lives are with media. It's important to have good journalists and institutions that are committed to the truth. And, you know, the other thing that really grabbed me was just I, I find Loretta's story incredibly inspiring on a personal level for someone to fight to find meaning and fulfillment in her life and to go up against the norms of the era because they know deep down what's important to them. Uh, you know, I just found that very inspiring and timeless. All right, Matt, uh, thanks for talking with me. That was a really interesting conversation we had about the film. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Writer and director Matt Ruskin's film, Boston Strangler, is now streaming on Hulu. If you haven't already, listen to our three-part series on the Boston Strangler case. Our next episode will feature an interview with the stars of the film, Carrie Coon and Kira Knightley. I think Loretta is a bit like a bull in a china shop. I think that she's become incredibly angry that nobody's taking her seriously. She's becoming incredibly angry at being underestimated. I have known those feelings. I totally understood that kind of emotional place that she's in, where she just wants to do a good job. She knows she can do the good job, and she's got all of these guys standing in her way, and she just wants to punch them in the face. <laughs> I'm Dick Lair. Thanks for listening. Truth and Lies, The Boston Strangler is a production of ABC Audio. 20th Century Studios and Hulu are divisions of the Walt Disney Company, the parent company of ABC News. This episode was produced by Carrie Ann Thomas and Meg Fierro. Our supervising producers were Susie Liu and Sasha Aslanian. It was mixed by Evan Viola. Josh Cohan is our director of podcasting. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. Liz Alessi is VP of audio.